Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father God, I thank you so much for this time this morning. We can come together as one body, Lord, intent on hearing from you this morning. Lord, I pray that as we've come, as we got up and came in this morning, that you were already preparing our hearts to hear what it is that you have already prepared, Lord. Lord, this morning I pray for the other churches in town, the other pastors who are standing here and, and uh, Lord, um, pouring themselves out to be filled by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for all of, all of the churches in town that are standing solidly on the word of God with Christ as their cornerstone, Lord. Lord, would you use them as well in a mighty way this morning, that we might be, as Christians, a light to a community uh, that so desperately needs you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. Please now, Lord, take this time. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, well, a couple of weeks ago, I went to my first high school football game. It was fun. First Baptist. Um, my daughter's boyfriend plays for the team, and so um, we went to the First Baptist football game. Um, and I and I never really, I don't recall. I, I went to high school football games when I was in high school, but it wasn't to watch the game. You know, it was to walk around and meet girls. Obviously. <laughs> so anyway, I was at this game, and I don't know if you've ever been, I mean, maybe this happens at every game, but at this First Baptist game that I saw that along the sideline was this great big, like, TV screen, not facing us, though, facing the field. And what would happen is every time, like, the offense would finish their possession, um, they would come off the field, and they all come down, and they all sit down in front of the screen. And then their coach comes over while the defense is playing. Their coach comes over and he now reviews the play with them and then begins to point out to them where they could improve on the next time they got. I've never seen that before. But I thought, oh, they all come down. They sit down and they're all like, and they're watching uh, the, the plays. And he's saying, like, this is what you did and this is what you did. But you, if you, maybe if you did this or you could improve if you did this and this and this. And then the, the, it all switches, and they get up, and they go out, and then the defense comes in, and the defense sits down. And, and what happens is that the coach sits there, and he reviews everything that they've just done, and then he tells them how they could improve on it. And then he says, okay, get up and go. But he doesn't just say, go and be better. He says, all right, look, um, when you take the ball and run, tuck it in. Tuck it in so that if, when you get tackled, when they grab you, it doesn't come flying out. Or if you're a wide receiver, when you're running to catch the ball, don't look back to the look up to catch the ball. Uh, you know, quarterback, why do you got to be so obvious that it's a handoff? Why don't you just like hand it off and then pretend like you still have it kind of a thing. So he gives them specific instructions before he says, all right, here's some specific instructions. Now get up and go. And as I was watching that, I was thinking about that. I was like, that's very similar to Ephesians. You see, what Paul did in the first three chapters is he says, I want you to come and sit, and I want you to review all of the amazing things that God is and has done for you. Now, in 4, 5, and 6, this is what he says, get up and go. But he doesn't just say, get up and go. He says, I want you to get up and go. I want you, you've been sitting, reviewing all of these amazing things of God. Now, I want you to get up, and he's going to say, walk this way. And he's going to give him, them, and us, some very specific things that we are to do and not do. And I know, I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh, here it comes. Chapter four, the list of things to do and don't do. I'm a Christian now. I've got to do these things and not do those things. But... I think that we've spent enough time together in the word so that we know that when God says, these are the things I'd like you to do and these are the things that you are not to do, it's not because he's just trying to flex his muscles like he's got us in some kind of a headlock and he's like, hey, you can't do this and now you're going to do that. They're for our good. Remember in Deuteronomy, it says the commands of God are not a burden. 
but they're for our good. So we're going to go through these things and you're going to see that, oh, these are good things for us to do. They help us. They help with the Christian unity. Uh, they're good for the church. All of these things are good things. I'm very excited to talk about these things. So look at verse one, chapter four, verse one. I, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the way of the calling with which you were called. And he says, I, therefore, he drops in a therefore. Now, we know, because we've done this long enough, that when it says therefore, we're supposed to say, why is that? What's that therefore? But really what it means is kind of like since, right? So when it says therefore, that means that there's something it's making, he's making some kind of reference to what he had just said. So in essence, he's saying chapters one through three, since chapters one through three, do this or now this. So what is the since? What is the therefore? Well, here's a real quick review in case this is your first day. Since God and this is all taken out of one, two, and three. Since God blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heaven, in the heavenly places, since God chose you, adopted you, redeemed you through his blood, since he sealed you with and guaranteed your heavenly inheritance, since he made you alive, since he loved you, not because you're lovable, but because he is love, he, since he brought you near, since he put to death hatred, since he now dwells in your heart, since he gives you wisdom to begin to comprehend that his love has no limits and cannot be exhausted, therefore, walk worthy. Wow. Here's the thing, though, like, I know that maybe you're sitting there because I thought this at one point, too, when it says, walk worthy according to the calling. How am I supposed to walk worthy? I've been pointed out time and time again that I can't be worthy. The word worthy doesn't mean what we think worthy means here. It means balanced or equal measure. It was actually the word from the marketplace at the time that meant when you took some, you were buying wheat or corn or produce and they would put it on a scale. Um, they would put the weights of equal measure on the other side to balance the scales. And this is what it's saying is that you are to walk in a way that's balanced according to um, what's been done. Or in a sense, what he's saying is live your life in a balance with what you say you believe. You claim to be a Christian, then live the way a Christian ought to live. Be balanced. They'll say, well, I, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe all these things. But then you live this way out of balance with what you say you believe. So live the way a Christian ought to live. Well, how ought a Christian to live? Paul's going to remind you. We're going to be reminded today of how we ought to live as a Christian, as one who says, I believe all these things in chapters one through three. I believe that God did all those things for me. I believe that I am a follower, a, a Christian, so I will walk in the way. Remember the word walk means walk, <laughs> go, move, emotion, go in motion in that direction. Go. It does. So you can't stand still. You have to go. Walk worthy or in balance of the calling with which you've been called with all lowliness and gentleness with long suffering bearing with one another's burden bearing one another's burdens the very first thing that paul tells you to do is to walk in balance or in equal measure walk a life that's balanced and then he says and here's how you do it with all lowliness gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another burdens. Those are very interesting words. Lowliness, it simply means humility. Remember last week we talked about what humility meant? Humility means freedom from arrogance and pride. Freedom from arrogance and pride. It means trusting God more than yourself. Meaning, you know what? Even though I'm afraid that I might get made fun of if I say this uh, or share that, I'm going to trust God more than my own feelings. I'm going to, and that means like I'm humbled. Now, sometimes we mix up humbleness or being humble and being humiliated. Or that's when someone's trying to take advantage of you by making you feel stupid or low. And God says, no, humility means that you're free from feeling arrogant or feeling prideful. And then he said, but he, he, uh, he attaches the next one and gentleness. Do you know what gentleness means? It, it actually means like gentle strength or power in reserve. 
That's gentleness, power and reserve. So he was like, look, they make, make, want to make you feel weak because you're lowly, but you're not weak. You're actually strong and you're demonstrating how strong you are by holding that power in reserve. Let's say that someone comes up and starts calling you um, names and making fun of you. Um, if you're like me, um, you could very easily turn those tables around and make that person also feel very low by making some digs or cuts. And I used to be really good at that. And in my head, I still am. But I exercise gentleness or power within reserve. I was like, in my mind, I think I could cut you down with my words just as easily as you're doing it. But I won't because it's not nice. It's not Christian-like. It's not godly. He says humility or lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering means patience. Long-suffering means patience. Bearing with one another in love. It's such an interesting phrase, bearing with one another in love. Sometimes we think, well, I have to bear with this person patiently. Like I have to put up with them. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to bear this person, but I'm supposed to do it for a long time. The word bearing means actually to hold up others in love. Not just put up, but hold up others so that there's someone who's, you know, maybe trying your patience in your life. And I think Paul would say, okay, well, rather than think, oh, I just have to endure them. He's saying, are you holding them up? Later on, he's going to talk about the kind of words that we're supposed to use and not, and not use, whether we're tearing them down or whether we're edifying, building up. Remember, these are things that, you know, as I'm going through these things, remember that Paul's saying, is your life in balance with these things? He says in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, endeavoring is, you know, one of those dollar words, but really what it means is be diligent. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every, every effort. Did you ever get into a theological discussion with somebody where you just don't agree necessarily? Um, and you're like, well, that's this. And, you're, and you say, it's not that, it's this. And they say, no, I, I disagree, it's this. And you say, no, you're wrong, it's this. And it goes back and forth, does that ever, that doesn't happen to me, but I've heard people do that before. And this is what we say, well, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. <laughs> One time I discovered a long time ago that you could say, oh, you're probably right. You've not conceded anything, have you, at that point? You've just made peace. You're like, ah, oh, you're probably right. That we are to do every, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're supposed to be, within the body especially, we're supposed to be agents of unity. I think that, um, well, let's go on because I want to look at this. It says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all in you all. It's like one God, one spirit, one baptism for all you all. You know what happens is, and somewhere along the line, there became all of these kind of little incremental divisions in the body of Christ. That's where we have all these different like denominations. Well, we take communion differently than you take communion. Or we, we, we sprinkle, we don't immerse and, and, and all of that. But here's the thing, like God is saying, do y'all believe that my son Jesus Christ came and died for your sins on the cross? You do? Excellent. One God. Like there are a lot of churches in town that do it differently than we do. But as long as they are standing on the word of God and their foundation is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, we can have unity with these believers in Christ. One day a guy passes away. He goes to heaven and he's welcomed at the pearly gates by Gabriel. 
the angel Gabriel, and he welcomes him in. And he's like, hey, welcome. Glad you finally made it. Let me show you around a little. He's walking him around heaven, and he's like, you know, showing him the different wonderful parts of heaven. And they come across this enormous brick wall. Just goes for a long way this way and a long way that way. And he can faintly hear behind the wall, you know, a lot of people chattering and talking and glasses and silverware clinking like a big feast is going on and and laughing and frivolity. And he says, uh, wow, what's going on in there? And the angel looks at him and he says, well, that's where we keep the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. (laughs) Now, listen, you could insert anybody into that. That's where we keep the Calvary Chapel people. That's where we keep the assemblies of God people because we tend to start to divide up into these denominations that even though we are all standing on in the same spirit, in the same God, there's little things that begin to separate. We're like, well, they're wrong. We've got it figured out. We've got it right. One God, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Do you know what that verse means? I'll read it again. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. A measure here, the word measure is a measure that actually measures itself. A measure that measures itself. Now that's just as confusing as the verse. But this is what it means. How much grace did you need? Exactly as much as you got. How much grace did you need? Exactly as much as you got. The the Lord, I believe, puts it this way so that no one can say, well, you needed a lot more grace than I needed because we just measured it out by the standard measure of grace and you needed so many grace, you needed 10 grace units and I only needed two. Or I got a lot more grace than you got. He says, no, each one was given the amount of grace that they needed exactly as much as they needed and will continue to need. And that isn't a measure that you are supposed to be able to figure out. It is a gift that says, I give you as much grace as you need. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Okay, this ought to be fun. There are more than one schools of thought on this. I'm going to tell you what I believe. You don't have to agree with me. We can agree to disagree. But this is what I believe, and I'll tell you, it answered a few questions for me um, as I began to kind of embrace this idea. And, and, And don't be afraid and don't run away, and I'm not a heretic or anything like that. I believe what Paul is talking about here and what he's quoting here is in reference to that time that when Christ died and went into the tomb for those three days, there was a time when he descended into the lower parts of the earth for a purpose. Now, don't run away and don't be shocked. And please, because I'm not saying that he went to hell to be tormented or chained up or some kind of a punishment or needed to be born again, again. None of that. I actually believe all of that is heresy. But I do believe that there is evidence to support in the word that Jesus did descend into the lower parts of the earth, which it says here, um, for a purpose. And I believe it was that he was to go to proclaim the good news to the Old Testament saints who had died in faith. Wait, wait. Didn't the people who died in the Old Testament go to heaven? Well, we know that the only way The only way to come to the Father is through Jesus. John 14, 16. We know that. So how could those who died in the Old Testament times be in the presence of the Father without the shed blood of Jesus? Jesus himself gives us some insight on this. So turn with me over into Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19, it tells us, Jesus tells 
a story. Now, many, most people do not believe this is a parable because he doesn't, in, he doesn't identify it in such a way. He says there was a certain man that was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs of which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in the flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to, uh, to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Now, it appears that what Jesus is referring to is at least a place or two places, one called Hades, which is a place of torment, and one which is a place of comfort that's referred to as Abraham's bosom. And, and, and between those two places, one of torment and one of comfort, was a great gulf that separated them that no one could pass over either way. Why was Abraham's bosom necessary for Old, Testament, uh, for Old Testament folks? We understand that the Old Testament sacrificial system was set up so that the blood of sheep and bulls would be shed for the covering of sin. But the blood of sheep and bulls could never put off sin completely, only the shed blood of Jesus Christ was going to be able to do that. You have to remember, and we've said this recently, Jesus was not plan B. He was God's plan from the very beginning, even for the Old Testament saints. And so even though he gave them a sacrificial system that was set up to cover sin by the shed blood of an innocent uh, sacrifice, that shed blood was not able to put off sin permanently or forever. Only Jesus was able to be able to do that. So it says that these believers, they had received a promise that one was going to come, but that they had not actually received that promise. All right, now go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is the, the faith chapter in Hebrews. It talks about all these pillars of the Old Testament that, that because of faith, because of faith, because of faith, over and over and over again. But in chapter 11, verse 13, it reads this. These all, this is speaking of like all these people like uh, Abraham and Noah and Sarah. Uh, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They knew there was one who was coming. They knew that there was one who was going to come that was going to put off sin forever. But at that time, Jesus had not yet come or shed his blood. And so when they died, they had not yet received the promise, but they were assured of it and they could see it afar off. They knew it was coming. Now look at verse 39. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. How are we made perfect? By the shed blood of Jesus Christ. How do they need to be made perfect? By the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So while they were waiting for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, they were in a place called Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort. Jesus descended to preach to them the good news that they had been waiting for so that he could then take them to heaven from that place. Does that make sense? <laughs> hey, this is the question that was answered to me because I get asked it a lot. What happened to the people who died before? If, if everybody needs Jesus, what happened to the people who died in the Old Testament before Jesus? 
as kind of what they're saying is, it seems like the Bible says that not, every, not everybody who was created needs Jesus, but the Bible, according to what I just went through, means that everybody does need Jesus to stand in the presence of the Father because you must be perfect, and that only happens through Jesus. I mean, there's some weird stuff that has come out of that idea that Jesus descended, like, like sometimes he was like a prisoner. I don't know where they're getting that part. Um, that doesn't say that anywhere. But if you understand that Jesus went and preached the good news that they were waiting to hear while they were in a place of comfort, understand? That Jesus, it says, and, and go, okay, go back to Ephesians now, it says here that he that he led captivity captive. In Greek, you know what that actually says? That he took captivity captive. It says that he took captivity. And what was captivity? It was the bondage of sin. That when he died and shed his blood, he took captivity captive. That's what that says. Whew. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things, that he might fill the promises that were given to everyone that they had, could see afar off but had not yet received. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And so God, Jesus actually, gives gifts to his church. And those gifts take the form of these people who he has given. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, they're, they're um, again, this is kind of my opinion, but I'm looking at the Greek text here when I look at this. Um, there are uh, some churches out there who uh, believe that um, they are uh, uh, apostles, apostolic churches and things like that. And if you hear someone talking about the apostolic reform, I would just make your way away from that church. In the Greek, what he actually says here, it's very interesting the way, the way that Paul has worded it. He says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, but then he says, some now prophets. The word now is actually in the Greek. Some now prophets, some now evangelists, and some now pastors and teachers. In fact, it seems that what Paul is saying is there were apostles that the Lord Jesus appointed himself. Now there are evangelists. Now there are prophets. Now there are pastors and teachers. You can go through and do a study on how the apostles were chosen and there were the, the men that Jesus chose himself and that they spent, including Paul, by the way, even though it wasn't the physical human form, it says that he was taught all things by the Spirit of God when he was out in the wilderness and that he had revelation from Jesus himself. Um, and so what he says is, some now, there are some now who are prophets, some now are evangelists. You know, what, you know what an evangelist is? You know, the word means bringer of good news. How many of you are that? Everybody, put your hand up, everybody. You're all called to be uh, a bringer of good news. Now, I mean, are you fulfilling the, uh, the office of evangelist? You know, I don't know, maybe not. I mean, you know, Billy Graham certainly was one of those guys. Greg Laurie is one of those guys. And you may be called to that gift in a different way. Maybe it's just within your own family or your job or your school or whatever it is. But are we to be bringers of good news? Yes, we are. You know what a prophet is? It is a person that's gifted at expositing divine truth. Sometimes the word prophet, it's like... Um, it has some kind of a mystical, mysterious kind of a... Um, I believe what this says is God has given some people at some times the ability to exposit divine truth and that when that happens, we listen. And some pastors and teachers. Some of us are pastors and teachers. <laughs> For a purpose. Look at the next verse. He gave these gifts to the church for a purpose, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry and for the edification of the body of Christ. I have a purpose in the role that God has called me to, and it is to do this, to equip the saints. That's y'all, 
okay? And you're like, oh, well, you're the pastor. You're supposed to go out and you're supposed to do you know, evangelism. You're supposed to be the hands and feet. And as a Christian, I am. As a pastor, my job is to equip you all so you can do the work of the ministry. Do you know the word equipping? It just means to prepare. Imagine you were like, I'm going to go this week. I'm going to go camping. Um, and so I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to get all the equipment that I need to go camping. And so you would come to the store and let's say I work there and I would say, okay, you're going to need this. You're going to need that. You're going to need matches. You're going to sleeping bag. You need a backpack. You probably need a shovel. You need all these things and I'm going to give you all the equipment. I'm going to give you everything that you need to be able to then go and effectively camp. Well, what if you came in and I said, what if, what if you came into the camping store and I was like, you know what? Really all you need to do is feel really good about the idea that you're going to go camping. You don't need any of this stuff. Yeah, you don't need it. Just go on out there and feel great about it and be like, pat yourself on the back for wanting to go camping. You know what's going to happen? You're going to get out there and you're going to be in big trouble. You're going to find yourself way over your head and unprepared. And so my job is to help you be prepared to equip you to do the work of the ministry. So how many of you guys know who Chuck Smith is? mostly. Chuck Smith was the guy that basically founded the Calvary Chapel movement in the, in the 70s. Um, I read his uh, autobiography recently, and um, it's very interesting. It's very short, um, if you want to read it, but it's a really good story. Chuck uh, was brought up um, and, and taught in a completely different denomination called Foursquare. And it was a, a very evangelistically geared and focused um, denomination. In fact, what he said was that every single sermon that he ever preached was an evangelic, evangelistic sermon, meaning it would be as if I sat here every single week to you and all we ever talked about was how to be saved over and over and over again. What Chuck discovered was that nobody was growing in the church. They were all staying at this very introductory, okay, I'm saved, um, but I hear it every week. I'm saved, you're saved, I'm saved. This is how I get saved. I did that, I'm saved. You were saved, I'm saved, we're all saved. Now what? There was never any now what. All he ever did was preach evangelistic messages. It wasn't until Chuck made the decision to say, you know what, I'm just gonna take a book of the Bible and I'm just gonna like, teach through it. As soon as he started to do that, the church started to explode because people started to dig in and to grow in their own relationship. And as they did that, they started inviting people that they knew to come. And then those people got saved and they started to grow and they started to invite people to come. And that was what he realized was that I need to feed the sheep, yes, milk, but then meat so that they can grow. That's what he realized was his ministry, the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry to teach you, to help you read the word of God and to grow. It says in verse 32, we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to be perfect, to, uh, to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. He says, so you will grow and be strong Christians. That is what Paul is saying is the role of these um, individuals that he's given these gifts to for the equipping of the church so that you will grow into strong Christians and multiply. Look at verse 14. He, he, now he goes, he, he kind of juxtapositions his, uh, uh, the, the picture and he says, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. He uses a very simple to understand picture here that you're not carried about like a child. Do you know um, that when your children are little and they want to go that way and you want to go this way, who wins? You do because you walk over and you pick them up and you carry them in the direction you want to go. A child doesn't have much of a say in what direction he wants to go. He is subject to the authority uh, or whoever is in power over them at that time to pick them up and go. And he's saying, we are not to be like children who are picked up and carried off by whatever power is over you at that moment. It's a, and then he, then he identifies that they're not innocently picking you up, but he says, by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love. That's, this, is so, this is what he says we're supposed to do. Not carried off, but speaking the truth in love may grow up 
in all things into him who, leads the, who, le- who is the head, Christ. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth in the body for the edification of itself in love. That is a lot of words for Paul to say that the body is made up of a lot of parts. Um, And every part works its effective work in order for us to all um, share in the growth of the body. Think about this. Think about your own body. You have a lot of parts. You have like a head and shoulders, knees, toes. (laughs) I didn't know. That just came up just that second. You have elbows and fingers and, and, and armpits and all these parts. And they all have to work together. Imagine that I wanted to reach out and grab this water bottle. And so my head would say to my, my arm, uh, my shoulder, my forearm, and my, my elbow, my, my uh, wrist, my hand, I want you to reach out and grab that bottle. And we're all going to do it together. But what if my hand decided, I don't want to be a hand, I want to be a mouth. And what if my hand decided that it didn't want to do the role that it was called to do? And so the rest of my body is like, okay, let's get it. My hand is like, nope, nope, nope. And I'm like, grab it. And it's like, no, no, it doesn't work. There's no unity. He's saying that when all the parts work together, there's unity in the body. <clears throat> this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Uh, This says in the futility of their thinking or the futility, the word means vanity, emptiness, purposelessness, ineffectiveness of their thinking, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Ignorance is a word that's often just translated as willful blindness. It's like, I don't want to know. La, 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 la. I'm just going to close off my ears and close my eyes. The, the willful blindness. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Verse 19, who being past feeling. Past feeling means that I cease to care, which causes me to become callous and reckless, having given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. This is what he's saying. Don't walk in this way. You're not to walk in this way anymore. Look at verse 20. He says, but you. So he says, that's how they are. That's what they do. They've turned their heart away. They've turned their eyes. They've shut their ears so that they become careless and reckless. Giving the, where it says, uh, it says lewdness is a word that means sensuality. It means behavior that is shocking That's how they are. But you have not so learned Christ. This is not what you have learned from Jesus. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to the to God in true righteous and ho- righteousness and holiness. Put off the old man. Put on the new. See, it's very important that you see both of those because what happens if I was to put off, let's say my old man was the outfit I'm wearing. What happens if I only put off the old outfit? Well, I'd like to be standing here naked exposed, vulnerable. You can't just put off. You must put on. When I was a teenager, I had a friend who owned a farm. And during the summer, his dad would hire a bunch of us to um, bale hay as like a summer job. Has anyone ever baled hay as a summer job? Okay, the Ohio guys, for sure. (laughs) In Pennsylvania and uh, any place out in farm country, it's, it's hard work and it's summer. 
So by the end of the day, your clothes are dirty. They're, they're hay, hay. I don't know. You know, hay isn't like, the, the, it's not especially clean because it's just like outside. And so you're the whole time you're like grabbing hay and you're throwing it up on the wagon and that's all you do. And then if you're on the wagon, you're grabbing the bales and you're stacking. By the end of the day, you're sweaty top to bottom. You're dirty, uh, grimy is kind of the word I guess I'm thinking. And so what do you do is you go home and you take off that grimy, disgusting outfit that you've been wearing all day, you set it aside, you cleanse yourself, and then you put on a fresh, new, clean outfit. Put off, put on. You couldn't just go home and put that off and then go out about your business that day. You'd get arrested. You have to put on after you've taken off. And this is what he says here. He says, put off the old, form, the old man, put on the new man. I know this guy around here, this homeless guy, I was talking to him the other day. I happened to notice as I was talking to him, I was like, do you need anything? He's like, no, I'm okay. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to ask. I'm just going to do. So I happened to notice that the outfit that he had on was the same outfit I've seen him wear every single day since I've known him. And it was filthy, filthy. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Walmart. I'm going to get a couple of shirts and a couple of pair of pants and some socks and some underwear and all this stuff. And I'm going to bring it to him and I'm going to give it to him, which I did. There's my reward, by the way. So now you all know, uh, that's my reward for that, as you all know. I, you know, sorry, I didn't, it was just <laughs> part of the illustration. So I gave it to him and I was like, here you go. There's some new clothes for you. They're clean. You can wear these. And so I left him with it. And then I kind of watched for a couple of days. And you know what? I saw him the other day. He actually did have on the new shirt that I gave him, but you know what he had on? The filthy, disgusting outfit underneath it. He never took it off. He never took off the filthy, dirty clothes and, and to put on the new ones. He had put on a new shirt, but that's it. There was something about that that he did not want to let go of. He was trying to put on something new over top of it. It doesn't work that way. You cannot, as a Christian, say, well, I'm going to hold on to my filthy old man and just try and put the new man on top of it because really what, what is closest to your skin is the filthy, disgusting outfit that you've got on. You've got to put it off so that you could put on the new. Verse 25, it says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one body. Stop lying to each other, is what Paul says. Stop lying. In fact, he doesn't just say stop lying. He says, stop lying and speak the truth to one another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. I think this is one of the like, most quoted favorite verses in the entire Bible. It's like, be angry, don't sin. Well, that means I can get angry. I can get angry as long as I don't sin. I can get angry. And really the way the verse is phrased, it says, don't, uh, don't, do not sin by letting anger control you. Do not sin by letting anger control you. Well, what about righteous anger? How about righteous anger? Here's my question. Are you righteous? Are you righteous? Uh, you know, well, Jesus turned over tables and he was angry. Jesus was righteous. If anybody would know what righteous anger was, Jesus would know. But we like to say, but I have righteous anger. I was like, well, what Paul says is don't let your anger cause you to sin. In fact, turn over to verse 31 just for a second here. Let all bitterness, wrath, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away. It seems like to me Paul is saying, um, avoid anger. Because look at, it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. It's all in the same part. Do not let your anger give an opportunity, that's the word place, Give an opportunity to the devil. How much anger is enough anger to cause you to sin? Do you know the line? Do you know the line? I doubt it. What he says is, Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And Paul would also say, 
as much as depend, if possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with one another. I know I'm going to hear about righteous anger later. I know it. It's okay. I can handle it. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. Do you see what that says? It's a complete flip and not just a flip. It goes beyond because it says, if you are a thief, stop being a thief and get a job so that you can provide for yourself. No, beyond that so that you will have something to give someone else in need. He takes it beyond what even maybe a Gentile at the time would say, well, all right, I'm going to get a job so I can take care of myself. And he says, it's more than that. It's so that you can be focused on the other person that has need. Get a job so you can help them, not just help yourself. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Corrupt right there is a word, it means rotten. Pretty simple. Let no rotten word proceed from your mouth. Dirty jokes, curse words, gossip, words intended to tear somebody down. Let nothing like that come from your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification, building up, that may impart grace to the hearers. Uh, that, again, is not just for your sake. It is for the sake of those who hear the words you're speaking. Have you ever gone to, like, uh, a produce market or seed the table or something, and you look over, and they just happen to have, that time of year, a display of, like, peaches, and you're not, not, you know, you're not normally a peach person, but you're like, man, those peaches look so good. And I'm going to, I'm, you know what, I'm going to get like two dozen. I'm going to be like, the peach is my new thing. I'm like the peach guy now. Because they just look so good. And you bring home like two dozen peaches. You put them in a big bowl on your counter. And like, I'm going to have like a peach every meal. And at night before I go to bed and peaches, peaches, peaches. And then you remember, you hate peaches because they're fuzzy. And what's up with that? So you eat one or two, you have like 22 peaches left, and they're sitting on your counter, and what happens is one peach starts to go bad immediately, right? What happens? That one peach infects this peach, and that peach, and that peach, and pretty soon you've just got a big, fuzzy, mushy bowl of bad peaches because one has affected all the other ones. And this is kind of the picture. He's saying rotten words from your mouth can affect those who you are speaking it to. So if you're sitting there saying, um, you know, like I've got some gossip or I've got some things. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about that. This is how this person is ticking me off. It will begin to affect that person that you're speaking it to, not just cut down the person that you're speaking about. Let that not come out of your mouth. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That word grieve, it means a deep emotional pain. And do you see what it's saying? That the Holy Spirit can be affected emotionally by your actions and your words. That means that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force, but a person. We have trouble with that because we think person equals human. But it doesn't. Person is not just human, um, especially as it applies to the Holy Spirit and to God. We say the three persons of the Trinity. God, the Holy, they're God alike. All right, excellent. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another. I can't help but think of Bill and Ted. Be excellent to each other. Tender-hearted. Tender-hearted is really just a word that means be merciful. Be merciful. We understand mercy. We've received it in, in enormous measure. Be merciful. 
forgiving one another even as Christ forgave you. What does that mean? Even as God in Christ forgave you, even though we did not deserve it or even ask for it. I'll forgive them when they come crawling to me because I'm a Christian, I'll forgive them, but they're going to crawl and they're going to like, please forgive me. You know, how hard is it to forgive someone who never comes to you and asks for forgiveness? But he says, forgive even as God forgave you through Christ. You did not ask for forgiveness. He forgave you. You didn't ask for it. You certainly didn't deserve it. That's how we're supposed to do it. Someone, someone um, hurts your feelings. Does someone come to you and hurt your feelings? You're like, I need to let them know that they hurt my feelings. I need, the Bible says, Matthew 18, that I need to let them know that they hurt my feelings. In fact, the Bible says, if they sin against you, go to them. But with what kind of heart? A forgiving heart. If someone hurts your feelings, Paul would say, forgive them because you were forgiven. Forgive them. Let it roll off your back. But I want them to know that they hurt me. They need to know that they hurt me. No, they don't. Sorry. They don't need to know. That's basically you saying, you hurt me, I want you to hurt because you hurt me. Forgive them. Bearing up with them. Long-suffering. Be tender-hearted, Merciful. This is what Paul calls them to be as followers of Christ. He says, this is what he did for you. This is what he's given you. Now get up and go and do these things. Be this. Walk in balance with what you say you are. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this reminder. Lord, as we sit in front of your giant TV screen on the side of the football field and review all that you've done for us, Lord, and now you remind us of how to be. Lord, let us embrace these words not as uh, burdens, Lord, but things that will make us more Christ-like. Lord, help us to be loving, forgiving, tender-hearted, merciful. Lord, help us to put off wrath and anger and malice. Lord, if we are still holding on to some of the garments of our old life, Lord, help us to bring that to mind so that we can put those off. We might be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.